When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, pop culture historian Arlen Schumer returns with part two of a four-part series, Sean Connery and the James Bond Canon. This time around, from Russia with love. And the reason why it's a Dark Horse favorite is because it's a true spy movie. You know, everybody talks about how the Bond films went downhill when they became too gadgety. They started saying that with Goldfinger and Thunderball. But when you talk about From Rush With Love, other than his briefcase, which was the gadget that ended up saving his life, remember when he pulls the knife out and the tear gas? That was the extent of the gimmick, so to speak. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more. All emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Arlen, welcome back. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. So we're anticipating the second installment in the Sean Connery Bond canon from Russia with Love. Uh, let's uh, keep in te- mind it's only the first four films. You got to let people know when we say the Sean Connery Bond canon, he did seven Bond films. I only talk about the first four, which I believe are canon. I believe Bond jumps the shark, starting with You Only Live Twice, which when you bring that up to Bond aficionados, you know, that's very controversial because, you know, every film has its fans. But my whole point was I've always believed that the first four films are their own thing and they're very different from the films that came after. Right. And that's what we'll talk about. Part The main thing is it was the same creative crew on the first four films, whereas once you start with You Only Live Twice, they change up the creative crew. Right. And it's never as great, whereas the first four films, even though they had two different directors, the editor, the photographer, the writer, they were all the same, and they were crucial to establishing you know, the Connery bond, but it changes with You Only Live Twice. Right. So last time we did Dr. No, the first one out of the shoot. And we should tell people where and when they can watch your wonderful visual presentation of the Sean Connery bond canon. My bond webinar is only four installments, obviously. And I started it last month and it's sort of the third Wednesday in 
the month. Wow. That means it's coming up on Wednesday, April 21st at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's free. And to get the Zoom meeting information, you just go to my website, arlenschumer.com, and make sure you spell my name right, A-R-L-E-N-S-C-H-U-M-E-R. And then there's a, an events listing where I post all of my webinars and similar type events where I post all the information, all the links, so I make it very easy. If you're on Facebook or other social media, I post these events on social media as well. I'm very active on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, Twitter, LinkedIn, but that should give everybody the information they need, right? Right, and for those who missed the first one, Dr. No, I believe that's now up and available on ArlenSchumer.com. Exactly, yeah. it's under, there's a category next to events called visual lectures, which is what I used to call my webinars when I did them live pre-pandemic before, you know, uh, um, a live audience. And, uh, but since the pandemic shutdown, I've been lucky enough to sort of transfer to webinars, which are essentially live lectures done remotely. And it's the next best thing to having a live lecture. So uh, under the visual lectures column in my website, uh, on my website, you'll see I posted the Dr. No video there as a sample of one of my webinars. So when people are, you know, researching me and looking at what I offer in terms of pop culture lectures, uh, I use that as an example, mostly because when I posted it on my YouTube channel, it was taken down by YouTube because of copyright violations, because ah. technically I'm using copyrighted material. Now, between you and me, Richard, it's fair use. Exactly. If you know the definition of fair yes. use. I'm doing an historical critical analysis. Right. Fair use should cover, by its definition, anything of historical or critical analysis, which is exactly what my lectures and webinars are. They're historical critical analysis of pop culture, comic book history, Twilight Zone, Bruce Springsteen, James Bond, Superman cartoons, and you know, a bunch of other subjects that I do. And many of those are posted on my YouTube channel. So what happened was YouTube is very, you know, because they're the biggest, um, all of the major IP owners like United Artists or whoever owns James Bond, Sony, I don't know, you know, they have batteries of lawyers who monitor YouTube for any infringement, any use. They don't care that it's fair use or educational. To them, any use of their material, if they can block it, they will. And your choice is to spend the money to go to court to stand up for your rights under fair use. Right, right. And they know that the average person posting on YouTube doesn't have the money or the wherewithal to challenge them. Precisely. So that's how they get it. It's a, it's a type of legal intellectual bullying. And um, so um, Vimeo is another major video website carrier. And I've posted the things that YouTube's rejected over on YouTube. I have a couple of other videos there, again, about Bruce Springsteen or Twilight Zone that were rejected by YouTube. So I post them both on Vimeo and my own website. And it seems like, and I hope I'm not letting the cat out of the bag, but it seems like the IP owners don't care about Vimeo. Maybe, you know, the subscription number is too low. I don't know for them to care about, but it seems like the ones that have been rejected for copyright infringement reasons on YouTube seem to be safe on Vimeo. So if you go to Vimeo and look up Arlen Schumer, I don't hide behind pseudonyms, you'll find it. Or just go to my website because like, I've got a Bruce Springsteen subpage. Uh, I was art director of his first fan magazine when I was in college at Rhode Island School of Design. So I've done a number of projects about Bruce's music and his career. And those videos are posted on the Bruce page of my website of recent webinars and live lectures that I've done about him and his and his history. 
that covers it, I think. All right. So let's dive in from Russia with Love. Of course, the second film in the James Bond series. This is, I think, Fleming's fifth book. I'd read something like that. It was President John F. Kennedy's favorite book, apparently. And that is why the producers, Harry Saltzman and Albert Cubby Broccoli, as he was known, decided to move up from Russia with Love. I don't think they were planning from Russia with Love to be the second film. I think they wanted to do, you know, you got to be a real Bond trivia person. I mean, I know a lot about the Connery Bond, but I wouldn't call myself a trivia expert. But I know they they had other plans. Like, I think they wanted to make Honor Majesty's Secret Service early on, but it was deemed too expensive because of the ski locations. Um, keep in mind, at the beginning, you know, Dr. No had a million-dollar budget. I mean, even in 1962 dollars, that was a low budget for a fantasy film, essentially. It was a spy film slash fantasy film. It turns into a fantasy film you know, three quarters of the way through it when they get to Dr. No's lair. So for Rush With Love, once they found out, I believe the article was published in maybe 1962 while they were making Dr. No. And um, they decided because of Kennedy's popularity and the book shot, you know, right to the bestseller list, I assume, after that, they decided to make that their second film. Right. And I guess they doubled the budget. They made this one for two million and it brought in about what, 80, 80 million. You know, I don't again, I don't know statistics like that because I care more about the artistic. Right. But it was, a, it was a box office smash. Well, though. of course. Listen, yeah. Dr. Dr. No was successful. I don't know if it was a box office smash, but it was successful enough that United Artists realized, hey, we got a winner. And then the budgets for each successive film kept climbing and climbing. What's ironic about from Rush With Love is whatever the increased budget was, it was mostly shot on sets and location. There really weren't any really big fantasy sets that you come to associate with right, Bond, right. especially the early films, because remember I mentioned the creative crew was intact on the first four films? Right, Terrence Young. And except, except for films two and three. In film two from Rush With Love, the great set designer, Ken Adam, who designed the sets for not only all the Connery Bond films, but I think a bunch of them were films as well. You know, one of the most famous people in movie history for production design. But he made his name on the Bond films. And when Stanley Kubrick, in 1963, when he was planning and beginning to do pre-production for Dr. Strangelove, which came out, I think, in January 64, when he saw the set design in Dr. No, when um, the henchman of No, I forget his name, Professor uh, Dent, I think his name was, when he goes to Dr. No's head, uh, like, lair, and he's in that strange set with that weird skylight. You know that right. set? Yes, yes. When Kubrick saw that, he said, I got to hire this guy to do the war room in Dr. Strangelove. You know that classic set? Yeah. I mean, it's the star of the movie, really. That's Ken Adam based on Kubrick loving what he saw in Dr. No. Right, right. One of the greatest all-time lines for me in movie history comes from Stanley Kubrick film. He says, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. (laughs) You can't fight in here. This is the war room. Only Yogi Berra could have said something like that, right? (laughs) The way he would come up with those, you know, malapropisms, I think they're called. Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, that is why Dr. and And I'm making my circular point. I'm coming back around to why I brought this up. So, Dr. Uh, from Rush With Love, Ken Adams is not credited at all because he wasn't a part of the film. All during 1963, when they're making From Rush With Love, he's working on Kubrick's film. So, the art director, Sid Kane, who is also famous in his own right as an art director, he was billed as, I think, production designer on From Rush With Love. And some other guy is credited, I don't know, as an art director or something like that. But essentially, 
whatever sets had to be constructed. And in For Much Real Love, if you remember, there's really very few. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's it's interesting because it's uh, the they're only, not exotic. I mean, they're not, you know, it's Turkey. Opening, it's right. all in Turkey and the you Orient that, Express. The opening scene is that great chess match where uh, Kronstein has to leave immediately to go see number one, you know, Blofeld, which we didn't even know his name at the time. But, you know, that set, it's a really beautiful giant chessboard. And that's something that Sid Kane designed. But other than that set, all the other indoor sets are are pretty, when I say pedestrian, they're befitting the action. You know, from Rush With Love is really the dark horse favorite, I think, among Bond aficionados, the film, for being closest to the book. Whereas, you know, most of the Bond films vary, especially as they went on, they varied wildly from Fleming's book to the point where they were, they got to a point where they were only using titles of his books and none of the plots. Ah. But because of From Rush With Love is really, and the reason why it's a Dark Horse favorite is because it's a true spy movie. You know, everybody talks about how the Bond films went downhill when they became too gadgety. They started saying that, you know, with Goldfinger and Thunderball. But, um, you know, when you talk about From Rush With Love, other than his briefcase, which was the gadget that ended up saving his life, remember when he pulls the knife out and the tear gas? Sure. That was the extent of, of you know, the, the, the gimmick, so to speak. From Rush With Love almost feels more like an, uh, a Hitchcock film. Yes, and that's the other thing about it that makes it different from the other films is that, you know, the Hitchcock, Cary Grant, North by Northwest connections to Bond, I talk about in my webinars, they asked Cary Grant to play Bond in 1962, before, way before Connery was given the role, especially after, you know, look at Cary Grant's movies with Hitchcock in the 50s, especially North by Northwest. And he declined because he knew it couldn't just be one film. They wanted him for the series, and he didn't want to tie himself down to a series. So then you get the idea that From Rush With Love really is the closest, I think, and I'm sure other Bond aficionados feel this way, to if Hitchcock would have directed a Bond film during his prime, you know, right after Psycho and The Birds and, you know, that that Hitchcock, if he had directed a Bond film, it would have been from Rush With Love because the suspense of the plot, the buildup to the Robert Shaw, the villain, Red Grant, um, in that train car, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, more in depth, but... The buildup of of the film to the final confrontation is Hitchcockian in the way director Terrence Young paces it and films it and the, the way the script was written. I don't know whether they intentionally said, let's do this like Hitchcock, but it feels like that. Right. And the asterisk to this is that uh, Terrence Young, the director, went on to do a film in 1967 with Audrey Hepburn called Wait Until Dark, which is totally Hitchcockian. Hmm. So it shows you that Terrence Young really had the, um, the goods creatively because you look at Wait Until Dark and you look at From Rush With Love and those are as good or great as I think anything Hitchcock did. In, in terms of suspense, which is what Hitchcock was always known for. Right, right. It's interesting that Connery doesn't actually even appear in the film for, what, something like 15, 20 minutes. The pacing is very different than the other Bond yes. films. It's very, almost slow. Well, you know, this gets into complaints everybody has about every Bond film. They, I love Thunderball, but there are Bond fans that think it's too slow. They think the underwater scenes are too slow. You know... Here's the thing, especially these days of the internet, Richard. Everybody loves everything and everybody hates everything. Meaning, 
no matter what, you'll find an opinion about the greatest work of art being a piece of crap and the biggest piece of crap being a work of art and everything in between. So, you know, when it comes to the first four Bond films, the way I see it is that they're all equally brilliant and they all have flaws to them. They're not what I call perfect films. Meaning I could talk about how each film has a kind of flaw or, or more than one flaw in it. But on the plus side of the ledger, they each have something unique to them that the other three don't have. So when people try to rate, oh, what's your best Bond film? I always say I can't choose between the first four because even, let's say, Dr. No, you know, didn't have a John Barry soundtrack, you know, didn't have the classic opening teaser sequence, which started with From Rush With Love. You know, From Rush With Love debuts so many of the Bond tropes. I maintain that really From Rush With Love is the first real Bond film, whereas I would label Dr. No like zero and I would label From Rush With Love one. You know what I mean? Right, right. But Dr. No has things in it that the other three films don't have. Forget about the fact that it's got Ursula Andress. I don't really care about that. It's got Dr. No himself, who is as great a villain as Goldfinger, Red Grant, or Largo even. Largo's never considered in the group. They always talk about Goldfinger and Oddjob being the greatest villains. But, you know... Red Grant and Lottie Lenya as Rosa Klebb are right up there. But Dr. No visually is brilliant. The metal hands, the way they fight at the end, the the whole, like I said, the set design, the, the fact that it was the first Bond film and debuted the classic scenes, the stations of the Bond cross, so to speak, like when the articulate villain has the talk, as I call it, with Bond. There's always the talk where they either try to get him to join him, join Spectre, or you know what I mean by right. the talk. Right. Well, that starts with Dr. No, when they're at that dinner table and Connery just totally, I mean, he sets what would become, you know, the shtick where Bond just puts down the villain right to his face, like, like totally berates him verbally. It's hilarious. He goes, tell me, Dr. No, this is my lousy Connery impression. Tell me, Dr. No, does, does toppling American missiles compensate for having no hands? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and I remember in, in Thunderball, he's talking to Largo at his Palmyra estate, and they're skeet shooting. And um, Largo says to Bond, here, you want to give it a try? And Bond takes the gun, and he goes, oh. Very light, made for a woman. <laughs> Mr. Macho just handed right. him a gun and Bond says right to his face, oh, made for a woman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, Dr. No is, I think it was released like right during the the, the, uh, the missiles of October, right? October of 62. And then you've got... Two weeks, not two weeks before ah. Cuban Missile Crisis, Dr. No comes out. You talk about being not only of its time and prescient, but imagine people are in England, remember, it opened up in America in the spring of 63. The early Bond films opened up in England first and then in America. I don't think it, it, it wasn't until I believe with Thunderball that they had simultaneous opening dates. I believe the first three films all open up in England first, usually in the fall, September, October, December, and then it opens up in the United States sometimes a couple months later. Like, I don't think Dr. No opened up in the U.S. until the spring of 63. Uh -huh. I don't think From Rush to Love opened up until the spring of, or, you know, early spring 64. And um, anyway, so the, the point is, is, is imagine two weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the world is already living under the atomic bomb and people are building bomb shelters and it's the it's the atomic age, you know, when Russia was the villain and, you know, they had the bomb and, you know, there were Twilight Zone episodes about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It was that was the currency of that was the zeitgeist. 
People thought the bomb could drop any moment. So imagine this movie comes out, James Bond, and it's all about, you know, Dr. No toppling American missiles in order to encourage a war, you know, or whatever they, uh, Dr. No's plan was, you know. And then two weeks later, there's a real-life Dr. No in Cuba, in a sense, you know. Right, except... And I don't know what Ian Fleming's version of it was in the book. I haven't read the book, but the, I. I mean, these, I, are, the these are I mean, the, yes, they are Cold War thrillers, but the, the villains are often trying to get America and Russia to fight each other. It's not like the film has is like America versus Russia, right? It's like Spectre is trying to manipulate yes. America and, and Russia yes. to fight each other. So it's kind of an it, they've taken out the okay, political now, I, connotations. I, okay, I, I, Okay, but I forget what his reasoning in Dr. No was. He was only toppling American missiles. But I forget what his rationale was. Oh, oh, well, oh, I know why. Because he was toppling them secretly, so America would think Russia was behind it. That was the whole point. Yeah. And then, by the way, this is why another reason why You Only Live Twice jumps the shark. Because the plot of You Only Live Twice with Blofeld in that, you know, volcano lair is essentially the same plot as Dr. No. Interesting. Where he's kidnapping American rockets and blaming it on Russia so that they would start a war. And I remember even as a kid going to see You Only Live Twice and going, this is just like Dr. No with a bigger budget. Right, right. So that's just one of the many reasons I don't include You Only Live Twice in the Bond canon, even though plenty of Bond fans love it. I think it's 50% unwatchable. So let's talk a little bit about the plot. We have this uh, the defection of this beautiful Russian embassy employee in Istanbul. Right. She wants political right. asylum in exchange for this lector, which is a decoding machine, like the Enigma the le- machine. First of all, you got to love that word, the lector, yes. L-E-K-T-O-R. <laughs> like, it's just such a cool word. We've got to steal the lector. Right, right. And so she's only willing to trade it. She has, you know, Bond has to be the one, right? They want to lure him in because they're, I mean, this is kind of a a natural sequel to Dr. No, because Spectre now is seeking revenge for the death of Dr. No. Right. And, but, you know, M and Bond, they, they see, obviously, it's a setup, but they feel that it's worth it if they can get the lector out of it. But they already know something's, a miss. They don't, at that point, remember, all, up until that point, they think Smirsh is involved. And when Red Grant reveals in the train car that he's working for Spectre, that was news to Bond because they thought all along, which was, of course, Spectre's whole plan was to let them think Russia was behind it when it was really Spectre all along. More of my conversation with comic book style illustrator and pop culture historian Arlen Schumer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Did you know that bee pollen contains almost all of the nutrients required by the human body to thrive? Get your two-month supply of bee pollen from GetTheTea.com. Bee pollen is a super nutritious way to boost your energy levels. It's referred to as nature's most complete health food. It's a natural immune booster. Bee pollen may help boost brain function. It may aid occasional seasonal allergies. Bee pollen, Mother Nature's immune support from GetTheTea.com. A 60-day supply costs just $31. Bee pollen should be avoided by anyone with an allergy to honey or bees. The benefits of this product go way beyond what I've told you here. Do your research. Order your bee pollen from GetTheTea.com and use the code word UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Get your bee pollen from GetTheTea.com. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. An ordinary black leather case with 20 rounds of ammunition here and here. Now, if you take the top off, you'll find the ammunition inside. On the side here, flat throwing knife. Press that button there. Now she comes. 
Inside the case, you'll find an AR-7 folding sniper's rifle, 0.25 caliber, with an infrared telescopic sight. Then, if you pull out these straps, inside are 50 gold sovereigns, 25 in either side. Now, watch very carefully. An ordinary tin of talcum powder. Inside, a tear gas cartridge. That goes in the case against the side here like that. It's magnetized, so it won't fall. Shut the case. Now, normally, to open a case like that, you move the catches to the side. If you do, the cartridge will explode in your face. Mm. Is that all, sir? Yes, thanks very much. Right. John? That's a nasty little Christmas present. But I shouldn't think I need it on this assignment, sir. All the same, take it with you. Good luck, 007. Arlen Schumer is here, and we're discussing the second in the James Bond film franchise, From Russia With Love. Would you say that it has one of the more complex plots in the series? Well, again, uh, you know, if you go by, if you have a negative view of the audience as, you know, an audience is essentially dumb, or that, you know what I mean, and they have to be spoon-fed stuff, that's why there's so many bad movies, because they feel the audience is dumb and has to be spoon-fed. Well, I'm just saying there's a lot of and, interesting twists and turns, well, maybe but, more, more than others. I'm saying, right, but all I'm saying is, you know, it's as simple or as complex as you want to make it. I mean, on the one hand, we just described the plot. You know, you know, they're going to set up this thing to make Bond think he's getting like went all along. You know, they just want to murder Bond. They could care less about the lector or anything like that. Right, right. Um, what else is unique about this film is the credits, right? Talk to me about how this is different. Right. So... You know, everybody knows the opening gun barrel sequence, you know, that opens up every Bond film. And that was designed by a New York-based graphic designer named Maurice. It's either Binder or Binder. I never quite got the pronunciation. But um, let's call him Binder because I bet you that's the old world Jewish pronunciation, Binder. Um, but anyway, he designs not only the gun barrel sequence, but he also designs the credits for Dr. No, which are those primary colored circular dots and they animate and they jump across the screen as the credits are roll. Going into the second film, I don't know, again, there's a level of trivia. I don't know whether they wanted a Binder to do the titles and he was busy, but one way or the other, a, an American graphic designer named Robert Brownjohn who was very successful in the 1950s in America, and he helped start a design firm that ended up being called Chermayev and Geismar that are considered in the graphic design world one of the leading uh, corporate graphic design firms ever. I mean, their list of famous logos and clients is like endless. And Brown John was originally a partner, but Brown John liked to party and he liked to drink and he liked to do drugs. And this is at the dawn of the sixties. He moves to England because the drug laws there were more lax than in America at the time. And one way or another, he gets the gig to do the credits to from Russia with love. Now, he had been experimenting in his work, in his graphic designs, with casting light and shadows onto objects so that their shadow would, let's say, bend around a circular object. Or if it was cast against another geometric form, it would bend and break in different areas, causing very interesting graphic patterns. And... There was a famous Swiss graphic designer named Maholi Naji, who um, he was inspired by, who had done experiments like that in the early 20th century. So Brown John, in the early 60s, is experimenting with things like 
projecting credits onto people's bodies while they were dancing. Now, if you know this scene in the 60s, once the psychedelic era hit in the mid-60s, that's what was happening. Right. People they... were projecting light shows and all things. Well, Brown John was on the cutting edge of that, as was Binder himself. The Bond credits are visually um, very important and very significant in terms of their impact and their effect and their influence. So Brown John, because one of the scenes in the film is a um, gypsy, you know, a, a female fight, and there's a gypsy dancer in the film doing the classic belly dance, Brown John decides, I'm going to project the credits onto a belly dancer as the music of for us with love not the you know the the soundtrack version sung by matt monroe is only played at the end of the film the credits only use an instrumental version of the song ah and it was and the that's first... what whether that was brown john's decision or whatever i you know again there, there's a level of trivia i don't know every single detail but that's how it ends up being used and they're really the first of its kind, you know, a mainstream film, you know, with, pre you know, in 1965, when the Beatles are putting together Rubber Soul, you know, the album cover for Rubber yes, Soul, yes. it's got that warp tilt. You know how yeah. that happened? No. The photographer, I forget his name, came over to show them slides of a photo shoot and they were going to pick one of the best pictures and use it as the album cover. So... The photographer goes to one of the Beatles. I don't know whether it was the studio. Oh, Robert Freeman. Might have been the studio while they were recording. So he set up a little makeshift little area that he could darken and project the slides. And he put up a piece of cardboard leaning against the wall as like a screen that he could project on. Well, he wanted to get the cardboard to stand straight, but it tilted when he projected the image and you know that tilt when you project a slide on a tilted surface you know it gets a little warped the right, image right and the beatles saw that they probably were smoking pot and were high at the time but the beatles saw that and they said that's the cover not the actual slide itself but the warped projection of the image ah all right and this is three years this is two years after From Rush With Love debuts with its projected warped type onto the, you know, body. So again, you'd have to be a Beatles expert and a Bond trivia expert to know whether uh, there was any direct influence. But the story I know is that the Beatles thing happened by accident. And yet, you know, Robert Brownjohn does it first. Interesting. I remember that yeah. kind of stuff on on Rowan and Martin's Laugh In, where they would you know project yeah, images. See, and that's here, right? And all I'm telling you, by 1966, when the psychedelic era hits full swing, people like Andy Warhol and his discotheque in Manhattan called the Electric Circus, he's doing light shows and projections, and on the West Coast, Bill Graham and the Grateful Dead, and Ken Kesey who really started the psychedelic movement, the author of One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. And just read Tom Wolfe's book, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, you'll get the whole story. Right, he was involved in those LSD experiments started. at Stanford. But anyway, yeah. at the same time, they're working with projections which were influenced by their acid trips. Um, so these things are happening in the mid-60s, but again, the Bond films predate both of those movements. Uh, the other thing with the credits was it was the it was the first Bond film. Well, it's only the second in the series, but it's the first one to have a like a pre-title sequence, right? So it like it starts after that. They all start off on their feet, right before the right. credits. And 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 I maintain that you know the three opening credit sequences for from Rush with Love, Goldfinger, and Thunderball are still the three best. I don't think any pre-credit sequence after that touches those those first three. But from Rush With Love being the first, if I had to choose which is the best, it's hard to beat from Rush With Love's opening credit sequence because nobody sees it coming. 
And, you know, we're used to Mission Impossible when the person's lying there dead and they take off the mask and it turns out it's somebody else. That all starts with From Rush With Love, you know. As you say, there are not a lot of... Well, which is your favorite of the first three? Ah, oh, boy. From mm. Rush With Love, Goldfinger, or Thunderball? Probably Thunderball. Probably Thunderball. Yeah. Yeah, because of the jetpack. Looking back now, it seems kind of quaint. But, you know, when I saw that as a kid, I mean, oh, that they was all still... Kind of... Yeah. A lot of Bond fans love the Goldfinger opening uh, credit sequence because it's a little miniature James Bond, Connery uh, spy mission that we get to see Bond in action when he's just doing like regular spy stuff, you know, right, planting right. a bomb in an oil refinery, you know. And so I would say, based on what I've read on the internet, I would say that's usually rated the favorite one is the one from Goldfinger. Which, by the way, when we talk, if we're going to meet up again a month from now and talk about Goldfinger, there's a very interesting thing about that opening credit sequence that, or pre-credit sequence, that I'll just declare this now. Even Bond aficionados were surprised when I pointed out something about that pre-credit sequence that even they didn't realize. So that's my little teaser for next month's Goldfinger webinar. Okay? All right, a little Easter egg for you. Yes. So we were talking about the jetpack and gadgets, and and in from Russia with Love, we get to meet Q for the first time, Desmond Llewellyn, right? Yes, yes. And introduces him to the briefcase, which Connery quips afterwards, makes for a nasty Christmas present. <laughs> you know, the knife, you know, juts out of the side. And, 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 a uh, primitive, and a primitive car phone, which was, you know, pretty cool for 1963. Absolutely. This is all new. You know, the things we take for granted now, a lot of them were, you know, the GPS screen. Uh, you know, when he gets his Aston Martin and Goldfinger, you know, that that's, you know, that's built into every car now. But in, yeah, 1963 or four, it was wild. It new you know nobody knew what computers were nobody knew what that stuff was but right. yes bond had the cutting edge of technology of the time and be, and i mentioned uh, q desmond llewellyn and, and this is their first interaction so he he hadn't quite really developed that repartee or that you know with with q right or... where he's impatient with bond because all he does is come in and, and show yeah. him the briefcase there really isn't bond makes his quip really to M while Q is walking out the door. He doesn't make it to Q. <laughs> so I think that only starts with Goldfinger where it's a it's a more extended scene because they got to go over the car and all the gadgets. So they wrote more into that scene where that really debuts the kind of, um, you know, contemptuous attitude that uh, Q has for Bond, you know, basically playing with Q's toys you know and not taking care of them so the one of the most iconic scenes in in the series is is rosa klebs testing of uh, robert shaw's character grant the villain uh, she smashes her steel knuckles into his waist to test his i guess his physical strength yeah she comes up behind them and puts on a pair of brass knuckles and lottie lenya is this tiny little woman well she comes around with a with a what do you call that in boxing? You know, the roundhouse swing? You know, what do you right. call that? Yeah, What's kind, that of a round, called, kind of a roundhouse, know? yeah. Right, and because she's small, and Robert Shaw was over six feet, I think, you know, her fist at, at parallel with the ground comes up to his abdomen, punches him right in the abdomen with the, with the brass knuckles. He barely flinches, and I love her line afterwards where she just takes off the brass knuckles, gives it to the assistant and goes, well, he seems fit, you know, to me, have him report, you know, at 0100. <laughs> <laughs> like that was her big test, you know, the blind brass knuckle punch into the, listen, that's what killed, what's his name? Houdini. That's right. Right? Yeah. He wasn't prepared and neither was Robert Shaw necessarily. I mean, he was standing at attention, but you know, um, anyway, so yeah, that's always a, a fun little scene and it's in my webinar, you know, in my webinar, I show like what I call the greatest hits of the film. 
so that when you watch my webinar, which is about the length of seeing the actual movie, it's really like I'm making a live documentary in real time. So I show you snippets, the greatest scenes of the film, so that I intersperse it with still images, with background material, um, and with my own commentary, so that I'm really like narrating the film while showing you the behind the scenes of the film. But by the time you get to the end, you feel like you've seen the whole movie because I've shown you all of what I call the greatest hits of the film. Right, right. It's like having the director's commentary. Uh, on. Yeah, and, yeah. It's like, and like I said, I'm really making a live documentary in real time. Because uh, if you think of any Ken Burns documentary, that's really what I'm doing with these Bond webinars. And really what I do with all my webinars is that I'm making like a real-time documentary in the moment. Because nothing is scripted. I mean, I have the images laid out in order, and I kind of know what I'm going to say about them. But I'm not reading off a script. It's all off the top of my head, just like I'm talking to you now. Let's talk about Red Grant. Robert Shaw, one of my favorite actors from Jaws. I love Robert Shaw. Was he the first choice for the for the villain? You know, again, I don't know that level of trivia. I'm not sure about that. But the key thing about Robert Shaw is that at the time, 1963, in addition to being a relatively new actor on the scene, he was already established, believe it or not, as an author of fiction. He wrote a book called The Hiding Place that came out a year or two before the film that was very well received by the critics. So imagine, Robert Shaw could have been a mainstream author, but he was like too successful in the movies. You know, a younger generation might know him as Quint in, in mm. um, Jaws. Jaws. Yeah which is, I believe, his second greatest role, because many of us who love him in From Russia Love consider that his greatest role, because you were really scared of him. I mean, he was menacing. Everything about him was menacing, and that's why the buildup of the film, where he's shadowing Connery's bond throughout the three quarters of the film, and then you get to the final confrontation in the train car, I mean, intellectually, you knew Bond, you know, was not going to die. But I mean, in the moment when you're seeing that film for the first time, you're really wondering, like, how the hell is Bond going to get yeah, out of this? Yeah, it seemed because inescapable. Yeah. This guy is a cold-blooded killer, period. And he took, you know, I mean, he was a machine. He was like a Terminator in a way. Right. And you, you really got that feeling of like, wow. And that's what makes From Russia Love, especially the train car fight, the greatest, not only Bond history, but I believe it's the greatest closed quarter fight in movie history. The the final showdown with, with uh, Shaw and the train car. Right. And, and he- it's a piece of film. Um, it, it's a Citizen Kane of action film. Uh, that scene is the Citizen Kane of action scenes, meaning the editing, the lighting, the music, the 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 way the scene is paced, the fighting itself. I mean, that really looks like Connery and Shaw. I, I think there were stuntmen for some of the scenes, but maybe not. Again, I don't know the level of trivia, but Connery and Shaw might have done the whole scene without stuntmen, I'm not sure. I've never seen pictures, you know, behind the scenes photos of stuntmen playing that scene. I think it was just the two of them, you know, and that's another thing that makes that scene brilliant and is that it feels real. And Terrence Young, the director, the choices to have the lights go out and the cracked windows that you would hear the rushing sound of the train, the editing by Peter Hunt, the sound design of the Bond films was groundbreaking for movies. The crispness of the fighting sounds, when he slams Shaw's body and head against the swinging train doors during that fight scene, just pay attention to the sound effects. The sound design of the Bond films was as creative and groundbreaking as any other element of the Bond films that make them really different from anything that had come before. The Bond films 
marked the beginning of the 60s, the beginning of the action film genre. There was nothing like them before. And even uh, Connery himself, he introduced, you know, karate and jujitsu. You look at whoever was considered the tough guys of the 50s, uh, whatever, Humphrey Bogart or anybody else. You look at fighting scenes in those movies and they feel very stagey and very, very, um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They just don't pack that oomph. Then you get the Bond films and because of the editing, you know, the modern film editing of quick cutting is what Peter Hunt, the editor of the first four Bond films, innovated by bringing that style, which was only used in TV commercials, he brought it into movies. There had never been that quick cutting that we're used to in modern action films before the Bond films. The Bond films begin the era of quick cutting, and you owe that to Peter Hunt. And in the end, he he gets uh, a grant by appealing, I guess, to his sense of greed, right? Yes, he offers him money. Well, again, think about your bond, and this is what you as the audience, like, how is he going to get out of that? So the minute he says, you know, I've got those 20 gold sovereigns in my briefcase, you know, he's, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's trying to figure out how to get out of this. So he appeals to his greed, and then you, the viewer, are going, oh, wait, that briefcase, wait, it's got that tear gas inside. And then if you remember the scene, he somehow knows that the second briefcase Grant is going to open himself. Because if you remember, Connery opened up the first briefcase and did the latches ordinarily so that the tear gas doesn't explode. But then he takes a gamble where Grant goes, are there any more in the other case? Remember, there were two cases. The guy that Grant murdered and took his place and Bond's case. So Connery goes, oh, yeah, it's a standard case. So Connery grabs it and is about to open it again. When Grant says, no, 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 let me open it. Now, that is a very interesting turn where you don't know for sure if Connery, like, what was he planning? In other words, he was gambling that Grant, in order to make the tear gas thing worse, Grant had to open it. But why would Grant not just let Connery open up the second one like he opened up the first one? Why do you think, Richard, and I don't have an answer. This is like a rhetorical question. But if you're working on the script and you're sitting there with the, with the director and you're going, how are we going to get the briefcase into Grant's hands for the tear gas to work if Connery first has to demonstrate it with the first case? So to me, I'm not saying it's a plot flaw, but... It was a total gamble on Connery Bond's part to first say, oh, I'll open it again. And then gambling that Grant's going to say, no, 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 let me open it. Right, right. Well, so, you, you understand? I know yeah, I'm the, making a mountain out of a molehill. No, mold but it's kind of a psychology thing. And exactly. I don't, yeah. It's a very, in other words, I guess you could justify it by saying, just like with Q. Q demonstrated it first, and then Connery did it. Remember? Right. It's right. like, now you try. And in the same way, maybe this was Richard Maybaum, the screenwriter's idea. First, let Connery demonstrate it, just like Q. And then we're going to gamble that Grant's ego is going to say, ah, let me open it. You know, it's a briefcase. I can open it. So I guess that was the psychology. It was still a gamble on Bond's part. Right, right. Let's talk about Tatiana Romanova, the love interest, yeah. Daniela Bianchi. Daniela Bianchi. What can you tell I'm us I'm assuming about? it's a ch sound and not a hard C, Bianchi. Right. But Bianchi, yeah. She had won a beauty contest in Italy either a year or two before, 61 or 62. I forget which year. And um, I think the producers were in Italy at the time or they went to Italy to scout 
um, Italian women because Italian women are beautiful. And I think they had looked at maybe French actresses. Again, I don't know the trivia behind it, but I do know that, you know, she was a beauty contest winner. And, um, you know, they saw her, met with her, and gave her the role. And um, Lada Lenya, who played uh, Kleb. Rosa Kleb. Mm. So Lottie Lenya was already a famous actress known mostly for the Three Penny Opera by Bertolt Brecht. And so Mac the Knife comes out of the Three Penny Opera. And, you know, it was very famous and blah, blah, blah. And again, offbeat casting. I don't know, again, the, the nuts and bolts about how they came to ask her and all that. But the bottom line is, as brilliant as Robert Shaw was as Red Grant, you know, Rosa Kleb by Lottie Lenya. And, you know, I've got pictures in my webinar of Lottie Lenya. She was a beautiful young woman, smiling, happy looking. But, man, did they transform her into this ogre of a woman, Rosa mm. Kleb. With a bottle And when you see these pictures and... in the webinar, yeah, but even when she wasn't wearing the glasses, she was menacing looking. But wait till you see the pictures in my webinar of Lottie Lenya beaming with a smile while she's getting made up <laughs> as Rosa Klebb. And I mean, what a transformation. And, you know, you got to love it just for the scene at the end alone, you know, with, the, with her trying to kick Bond with the steel-tipped shoes. That's worth the price of admission alone. It actually redeems the movie after the anticlimactic fight. You know, once he kills Robert Shaw... That's about three quarters of the way through the film. The final 15 minutes feel very anticlimactic, but you do have two great scenes of, you know, Kleb thinking she's going to get killed by Blofeld, but they kill Kronstein instead. And then the scene at the very end where she tries to kill Bond with the steel tip shoes. So those two scenes really save the movie from being like feeling of anti-climax after he kills Shaw. And uh, the fellow that played the uh, the head of the the MI6 branch in Istanbul, Ali Karim Bey, I guess was the character. Yeah. I remember Pedro um, Armanderas from the, the Sinbad movies back in the, around that same time, actually. Captain Sinbad. He, yeah, I forget what he was in. He was a very well-known, respected actor. And... You know, the dark story was that during the beginning of filming, he found out that he had an inoperable, I forget what it was, cancer or something. And um, he had like, you know, six weeks to live or something like that. And he had to go to Los Angeles eventually for chemo. And while he was in the uh, hospital room, he smuggled a gun in and shot himself mm. because he didn't want to go through chemo and whatever else. But what the producers did once they found out that his time, you know, and his, his energy strength, they switched production and did all of his scenes at Pinewood. So what might look like a location shot, like that gypsy camp, that great fight scene, I believe that was all a set at Pinewood. That was not on location. So to the Bond producer's credit, that was a beautiful thing they did by, by you know, catering to Armendariz by doing that. And when you watch the film, you know, it gives it a whole other meta kind of patina that you know it's funny i'm you know bewitched if you remember dick york yes the first darren the reason why he had to leave the show was he had horrible uh back pain um that plagued him throughout the series and when you watch the reruns you know he might look like he's having a good time but he was in extreme pain just like john f kennedy um you know, was drugged up most of his presidency, you know, because he had extreme pain. And, uh, you know, with his, uh, I forget his what his disease was called, Addison's disease. Um, and that's what made Kennedy Kennedy. Right. But right. Armand Darris did that. And um, 
so he died. He shot himself while they were still making from Rush with Love. So, you know, it does add this other weird dimension to the film. A poignancy also because you want, oh, I know what's crucial. Originally, the producers were going to let him get out of the film. They thought, you know, don't you want to just, you know, go home, be with your family? He said, no, I want this film not only financially to support my family, but I want it to be my legacy. Amazing. So that's when they came to the agreement of, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to shoot all your scenes in Pinewood. And they must have picked up right then and there and went to Pinewood. And maybe they had to go back to Turkey and film. I don't know how that worked out. But the bottom line is they bent over backwards to help him. And he succeeded. He ended up filming all of the scenes, even though he was in pain. And um, ended up, you know, right after his last scene was shot, he went to Los Angeles and uh, killed himself in the hotel room. So... But very, very sad. He succeeded but... in giving us his legacy because when you watch From Usher Love, he's a great character. And I mean, he has a couple of great scenes. And, you know, he's a big part of the film. Right, right. In the end, it's Romanova who actually kills Cleb, right? I mean, she shoots her, not Bond. Right. And then, of course, once their mission is accomplished, Bond and Romanova spend some time on a, a rom- romantic boat ride, which is. Gondola. And that's kind of an ongoing thing, right? It, it, Bond is often at the very end, the final scenes, often on a boat. Of course. Often on a boat with uh, with the love interest. Right. right. I think the first four films, well, Goldfinger, they end up on dry land. But the other three films, he winds up in water at the end. And, you know, Bond was a commander in the Navy, so it all kind of ties in, I guess, with that. But, mm-hmm. yeah, he winds up. But again, remember when I said each film has its flaws? Don't ask me why, and it's probably because they ran out of money or because of the shifting to Pinewood, but that final scene in the gondola is one of the worst rear projection you know, scenes in Bond history, if not in movie history. It's so phony and fake. Uh, I'm gonna have to go back and watch that now. And to me, it really ruins the scene and remember when um, Connery's in Hitchcock's Marnie and they're riding the horses mm-hmm. and, you know, horrible rear projection behind them while they're like riding the horses in the studio. Well, this is like that. They're sitting in a gondola. You would think the Bond films, they just filmed in Istanbul and, you know, you know what I mean? And right, all of a right. sudden, they were there. They you could. can't you can't shoot one scene in a gondola in Venice. So that's what I mean. Each of the four films have flaws like that. That to me are like little demerits. You know, like I love From Rush with Love. It's the most faithful. It's Hitchcockian. But you know, it's got a couple little check marks that I hold against it. You know. All right, so let's uh, tell people again how they can see your webinar. I show film clips. I show still images, production photos, background material, images from the rest of the popular culture. So I place the films in their time as these signposts of the 60s, as harbinger, 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 harbingers, harbingers yeah. of... The 60s creative explosion. The Bond films really, you know, they come out right, you know, right before the Beatles hit. The Bond films hit first. So it was Bond mania, Beatle mania, and then Bat mania in 1966. Those were the three pop culture manias. And again, the timing of uh, this one is going to be, is it April 21st? Yeah, so it's Wednesday the 21st, yep. 6 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And go to my website at the events for the Zoom meeting, passcode, all that ID information. It's free, obviously. And even if you can't make it live, don't worry, because I record these webinars. And eventually, I'll be posting them to my Vimeo channel and my website as well. So um, either way, you're not going to miss it if you can't miss it live. But there's always something fun about being part of something live. You know, like I said... I, I make this up in the moment. There's no script, you know? 
All right, and then thereafter we'll see the uh, the next two in the uh, the Bond canon. Goldfinger will be in May and right, Thun- sure Thunderball I'll in June. Finger. Right, right. I'm looking at my calendar. I already have May 19th for Goldfinger. Right for Goldfinger. That's the third, you know, Wednesday, and then it'll probably be June 23rd for Thunderball. And that's it. That's the Sean Connery Bond Canon Canon webinars with Arlen Schumer. Go to Arlen Schumer S C H U M E R Arlen Schumer A R L E N Schumer S C H U M E R dot com, and um, we'll we'll be back next month with a a preview of Goldfinger. Yeah, Richard, thank you for allowing me to wax poetic ad nauseum about my favorite. Connery Bond movies. All right, now I'm going to have to go back and watch the uh, the gondola scene and uh, from yeah, Russia with love. Yeah, sorry if I ruined it for you. Sorry <laughs> if I ruined it for you, but you're never gonna you're never gonna look at it the same way again. Believe me. <laughs> That's all right. All right, till next time, my friend. You got it, Richard. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Coming up next time, magic and politics seem like unlikely bedfellows, but in his new book, The King in Orange, author John Michael Greer goes beyond superficial memes and extreme partisanship to reveal the power of symbols informing popular opinion and political action, and with it, the competing and combating views of magic. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 